0: Hello and welcome back to Equity. This is an equity shot. We are diving into all things LinkedIn, China, Microsoft, regulatory and tension filled. It's going to be an absolute blast. I have Danny Crichton with me. Danny, hello. This is the weekend officially for everyone tuning in. Uh, how you doing? It's good. It's not the weekend yet, but uh, another 20 more meetings on this Friday and we're almost there. Well, we're putting this out on the weekend. So technically everyone listening is this is Saturday. So hi, you know. Congratulations on making it to the weekend. Uh, What's not going to make it to the weekend, though, is LinkedIn in China. Big news out this week from uh, Redmond, where the software company is based. Danny, this feels uh, like a long time coming, and I'm not super surprised by it, but it did drop seemingly out of the sky. So what's the context for people out there who are catching up on the story?
1: I mean, for years, LinkedIn was the only uh, Western or U.S.-based social network that was in China. Um, you know, Facebook has famously been cut out of the Middle Kingdom for for literally its entire existence. Yes. Twitter hasn't been accessible. Wikipedia is not available. You know, go down the list. There's almost nothing except for LinkedIn, and and for reasons that are always been a little bit mysterious, Microsoft has been able to sort of dodge a lot of the constraints around social networks that have been placed on other Western companies. Um, partly because they have uh, Microsoft Azure. Windows and a couple other products that are obviously very important on the mainland. Um, So LinkedIn has been there since I believe 2014, if I'm doing my math correctly. And for the last six or seven years, um, it's grown up. um, It's been mostly focused on professional social network, no different than sort of the United States. So it tends to have less political coverage, less controversy, unlike Twitter, you know, TikTok or Facebook. um, Up until the last couple of months, Uh, in in these last couple of months, China has been cutting down quite aggressively on, on social network, on media in general. And two weeks ago, uh, uh, the Chinese version of LinkedIn uh, basically shut out a bunch of U.S. journalists from the platform, basically banned them from having profiles on the mainland. Um, And then we found out, uh, I guess what, Wednesday or, or yesterday, that Microsoft was going to completely pull out of China when it comes to the LinkedIn product.
0: Yeah, and that's going to come by the end of the year. But I want to go back even further, Danny, to March. I think we didn't really pay a lot of attention to this when it happened, but I'm describing from a New York Times headline that I have pulled up here. China punishes Microsoft's LinkedIn over lax censorship. That's from March of this year. So to me, the decisions to later censor journalist profiles probably came from Microsoft trying to live up to the wrist slap that it got from the CCP earlier this year. And so it made a little bit more sense to see once I had gone back and done some research on, on the context of this. But all that's to say... Uh, Even though this feels like it fell out of the sky, like an anvil onto some sort of like Disney character. No, it's actually a long time coming. And this is uh, there. There were, I don't know, rumblings in the uh, in the background that we should have caught. Frankly, I feel a little bit like I should have known better.
1: Well, this isn't unique to Microsoft, right? So the Chinese government uh, has been cracking down on on ByteDance, which owns TikTok or Douyin uh, on the mainland. Um, There's been an incredible focus on on basically controlling the narrative on a lot of these social network platforms. So, so ByteDance has hired tens of thousands of uh, content moderators. Yes, um, Alibaba and Tencent has done the same on their related uh, networks. And and so, you know, in, in many ways, this is just sort of the mainstream issue that all tech companies in China are facing these days, which is a vastly different regulatory environment than they were experiencing even one year ago.
0: Yeah, and it and doesn't seem to be uh, hitting pause. The changes keep coming. And this is not just an economic thing. This is also hitting culture and so forth. I mean, China's government banned um, certain celebrity fan clubs they thought were insalubrious to the youth. They're banning video game time. It's really, um, I, I don't want to say a whole cloth remaking, but it's certainly a, a turn of the ship when it comes to how the government is uh, sticking itself into the lives of Chinese people. But I think, Danny, that when you think about the te- technology angle by itself, this pull out by Microsoft is kind of the end of the attempt to bridge the gap between China's Internet and the global Internet. It feels like this was the last major link across the two that was owned by a U.S. Company.
1: I, I think that's right. I mean, when you look at all the data and the history of the last 20 years, uh, you know, American companies for years have been trying to get access, particularly technology companies. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, there is hardware access So Apple is obviously very popular with iPhones on the mainland. Um, but. Uh, when it comes to the media side of things, it has always been very, very tricky. Even search engines. Uh, Google famously pulled out of China in 2010 over a fight uh, around a hack uh, on Gmail that was related to uh, Tibetan separatists, um, and so they had made the decision to move to Hong Kong, redirect uh, .cn users to the .hk users, um, oh, yeah. and have not been back since. Obviously, again, Facebook was never given access. So Microsoft was sort of the one-off person that was sort of able to to do both. They had invested a lot not just in in building out, I think, the infrastructure for LinkedIn, but Microsoft has thousands of AI jobs in its research center um, in in multiple Chinese cities and has always kind of invested heavily to try to bridge that gap. And I think you're absolutely right, Alex. Uh, Times have changed, and I think it's become much clearer that um, trying to bridge that gap is basically impossible for most tech companies today.
0: Yeah, and one thing that I was thinking about in the context of this and kind of major software companies and where China sits is, I'm like, well, you know, they do use Windows still you know, it's still very popular in China. It's pirated quite often, but you know, it's still kind of the OS of record. And so I did a little digging, Danny, and uh, two Chinese companies, um, CS2C and Tianjin Kailin, in 2019 announced they were gonna join forces and they were going to essentially work together to make a homegrown OS that could replace Windows Digging a little bit closer to uh, the recent time, seems to still be a couple years out. I don't think it's going to make a 2022 deadline, but they did use the Kylan system in some recent space tech. And so it's kind of getting out there into the world. Um, The question is, how good is a Chinese Communist Party approved OS going to be? Um, I'm not not optimistic that it's going to be fantastic and better than Windows 11, uh, but certainly that would further decouple China's um, kind of computing world from ours.
1: Well, there's a lot of focus on strategic uh, uh, autonomy, right? And so when you look at the OSs, there's a, a huge goal to sort of build everything in-house. You want to control the process soup to nuts. Um, I'm sure the the CCP version of Windows will have great desktop wallpaper. You probably yes. can't choose what it will be. No, um, I will say as a fun fact that North Korea actually has its own version of Linux called Red Star OS. It, it um, does. I knew um, and, that and too. <laughs> it, 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 it's um, fairly locked down, as one could imagine. Uh, but like, I, I think... Look, it's a big country. It's a big market. Uh, and I think there's an immense amount of opportunity still when you have 1.3 billion uh, consumers, almost all of whom are online, all of whom ha- are spending uh, heavily on all these different products. Um, but the, the fear has been over the last couple of years, and particularly over the last year for the CCP, that the tech companies have just gone too big, too powerful, yes. too independent, yes. too allowed to run their own shift and their own narrative, and, and the reins are going back onto them. So I... Look, I think Microsoft made the right move here. I don't think they had a choice. I'm glad that they sort of chose to do this expeditiously and just sort of, you know, they didn't fight it for two years and have a whole battle over it. I think the the writing was on the wall. But that leads to a big question because Microsoft doesn't just own Windows or LinkedIn. It also owns GitHub. And GitHub is by far one of the most important repositories of all code, open source, closed source, doesn't matter. Um, and, and there's a huge challenge. There's been a debate for the last couple of years about what China's going to do about GitHub because for yes. developers on the mainland, they need access to all this code yet. It is also a, 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 re- a repository for all kinds of information and data that the CCP by and large wants to censor. And there has been a huge conflict over there.
0: Yeah, and I'll, I'll throw in there that there's actually some use of GitHub by uh, certain people in China to get around certain speech rules and so forth. So there's actually kind of a bit of a revolutionary tie-in there. Uh, I will say that if you're not familiar, Beijing is building its own version of uh, a Git-style tool. It's called Gitee, or maybe GitE, one of the two. It's G-I-T-E-E. And uh, it's like GitLab. It's like GitHub, but it's from Beijing. So I I don't know if it's better or worse or whatever, but that's another tool they can put out and then begin to preclude access to other products out there and then further kind of like siloize themselves. My general impression, Danny, and I have to talk about my own politics here, but like as a capitalist and as someone who's been to more than one place in the world and has met lots of folks is that there's a lot of folks everywhere who are pretty smart and do cool things. And I don't think even one country as large as China will be able to out innovate the world.
1: I think that's right. I mean, look, um, you know, famously the Japanese computer science market is actually quite cloistered compared to the rest of the market. Um, so there's a lot of folks who try to bridge the Japanese AI research community to the US research community. Um, you know, I think the same thing will show up in China. Uh, some of that in the Japanese case is a language barrier. In China's case, obviously it's going to be a political barrier. Um, I you know, there's an opportunity when you're you're not in the mainstream, right, that you will can do different things. Um, there's opportunities to be original. You can actually control a lot of products. They'll go in different directions. So I can imagine just from the fact there's now two people working on the same thing that you will get some additional innovation. But these projects move so quickly that without access to the global repository of knowledge that goes on around computer science and AI, like I don't know how it's tenable. My assumption is, is that certain projects will be allowed across the firewall on a case-by-case basis. It will be brought yes. into Giddy not so uh, similar, dissimilar from how Linux has package managers and you can sort of upstream different packages onto your OS. And sometimes there's folks who are checking the security of those before it comes down to you. So yep. I, my guess is they're going to find a hybrid model that works for them. Um, that is, doesn't bode well, I think, if you are a Chinese AI researcher wanting to be at the edge of the field.
0: No, absolutely not. And I, I think, you know, the one thing I was looking for in the kind of Q3 venture capital data was a slowdown in China. I was really expecting, you know, given the last couple months of regulatory crackdown, that there would be a, 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 you know, dissipation of capital flowing into Chinese startups. Not really, according to the data that I've seen so far. So I'm curious where that money is going and what that kind of says about the future of the Chinese technology world. But uh, let's pivot back to the Git discussion and talk a little bit about GitLab. Uh, Danny, did you track this IPO? You and I haven't talked as much in the last week as we usually do. So I don't know where you are on GitLab.
1: I, I didn't track the IPO. I've, I've tracked the company for years. I've always been a huge fan of GitLab. Um, one of the most original you know, open source, fully remote companies, very yes. kind of stridently unique in that way. And it's just a great product. I mean, if you talk to engineers, at least my engineering friends, and I, I don't want to open up any massive you know, wars going on over tooling, but I will say GitLab has a very good reputation, has done very, very well, has grown tremendously. And even a couple of years ago, it was getting valuations that shocked people when it came to revenue multiples uh, which probably leads into the IPO.
0: Well, yes, but I want to pause on on the um, on the product point because I, I got some tweets yesterday talking about this because I was getting on the phone with uh, the CEO Sid, um, who I've known for a, a year or two now, and I you know I just did my usual thing I'm like hey talking to the CEO if you have any questions you know pop off and I'll grab some good ones and include them in my list and people were like in two camps there was the GitLab sucks GitHub rules camp and then there was the GitLab is great GitHub sucks camp and I was like. I didn't even know there was a holy war here, and I, apparently I just stumbled <laughs> into one. It's like opening the door and everyone's fighting, like, oh, I'm going to close that door. Um, but it's great to see, back to your point, two competing products, similar space, battling it out for for supremacy, and there does seem to be ample room for both of them, given the company's growth. Uh, it's on a $232.5 million run rate, uh, worth, according to MarketWatch right before we jumped on the podcast here. Roughly $15 billion. That gives it, Danny, a revenue multiple of thirty-eight thousand four hundred nineteen point seven, dollars <laughs> uh, which I cannot fully understand. And so I was hoping you could tell me from the venture perspective why, why it priced at 77 which was way above its raised range, and then in, in why it's now worth 100 bucks a share. I'm confused.
1: I mean, it, it, it's the best of breed when it comes to SaaS, right? If we're talking about hundreds of different SaaS companies, I think traditionally it, it, GitLab has really built up a reputation of having best-in-class metrics, best-in-class operating leverage. Uh, you know, again, they're fully remote, so they don't have offices. You actually get rid of even some margin that other SaaS companies that are best of breed don't have either. Um, and and when it comes to the product, um, they're in the space where there's a, there is a network effect to these sorts of repository products because you're working with different development teams. They've got to work uh, on one shared resource. So you're the, the system of record for all code. And, yes. um, you know, when you look at this market, yes, GitHub, there's GitLab. Um, there's a few other players there's one that went to a private equity company a few years ago uh that runs something called depot and i'm forgetting yes, its name right now Yes, i remember is, well, that transaction yeah yeah they that that was uh, when i was at google that was the code base mechanism repository mechanism back then um look i i think it, it's done extraordinarily well and look their their competitor is github which is owned by microsoft and i think there's an assumption in the market that look if you're best of breed competing against the the stolid you know, competitor that's a, a big tech company that's probably not making a huge amount of investment, you can do a lot of damage. Now, I think it's interesting because GitHub, to me, is one of the few acquisitions I think has been super successful. Now, Friedman, very smart guy, um, running the company over there, doing very successful things. GitHub has expanded tremendously. So you know, part of this is also the secular trend of just the number of developers in the world. You know, code yes. is just getting more important to the economy. There's more people using it. And so you have this huge wave of... Think of all the Gen Zers who are currently coding on on you know roblox or minecraft we're going to become the engineers of the future they're all going to be on GitLab in 10 years huge huge Danny, you know, tailwinds behind
0: them you do know that we work with some gen z people they're not nine
1: I, you know the the bulk the bolus of of the people the bolus of
0: the people yes the ball how the we ref- people. Ref- that's how Danny refers to children. Um, <laughs>
1: what, I, what I want to say is, you know,
0: looking at um, looking at GitLab at its IPO share, IPO price of $77 a share, it was the fourth or fifth best valued SaaS company in revenue multiple terms in the market. And now it's appreciated even greater. And so now it's probably top three in the in the world, which is pretty impressive. Danny, what I was struck by was the fact they started there out the gate. They showed up, they went public and they earned essentially a bronze medal, valuation you know on day one and i think in the older days you had to go public and then earn that a little bit more uh and i'm curious if you think this will lead other unicorns to try to jump in the pool given that this just got a bear hug from public investors
1: i mean just one data point among many right I, i think people are looking at the full data set i think they're seeing a lot of positive numbers across the board Um, Outside of our discussion on the equity podcast of Rent the Runway, which is running into a little turbulence on the runway, mostly because they're running out of runway. Um, The reality is, is if you don't have physical products, I mean, uh, could you imagine two companies that are more opposed, right? GitLab is in the cloud. It has amazing network effects, unbelievable operating leverage versus... You're managing physical inventory in stores and you're mailing dresses out uh, over the, you know, over oh, actual no. shipping lines. Yeah, and you have to um, buy the
0: dresses. You have enormous capex. I mean, you have enormous or, sorry, CapEx in, and then invest depreciation. In cash flow.
1: And then you yes. have depreciation uh for all this stuff. So look, it's it's an amazing business. It's in line with most other SaaS companies, it's another notch in the hat for the model. Um, yeah. you know, think five years ago we were still struggling to get SaaS companies out into the public markets. It's it's just another real strength.
0: Yeah. And just to put a, a little cap on what Danny was saying earlier about kind of best-in-class metrics, I, I just grabbed some numbers for us. In 2020, a pandemic year that had much turbulence, GitLab had net retention of 148%, a number that got slightly better, and now it's 152% in the first half of this year. Um, Danny, any enterprise SaaS company that has net retention over 125 is, is sitting pretty. 150 is, in, in my very experience, good. very right. rare at scale. Not that right. hard when you've got two customers, but like, you know, once you have an actual <laughs> customer base, it's well, super And, and look,
1: at, and, and it's also, it's dollar retention, right? So they're they're pulling in not only more users, they're also raising the amount of money per user with uh, advanced features, which is what they've been offering for the last couple of years. So across yes. the board, very, very strong. And, you know, I, I would use the term anti-fragile. You know, when the, when the pandemic hit, it actually became stronger because it was already remote. You didn't have to, con- you know, change everyone to for work from home. That's how they operated the last couple of years. And their customers had to do the same thing, which became even more important if you're working on code. So altogether, I think it's a very strong company, best of breed, and I think they're getting the premium they deserve for that. Of course, that begs a huge question, which is as these premiums get higher and higher and higher, one wonders, can these companies actually grow into the premium that they're being affixed? That to me is still a very open question. It is very expensive. Let's be clear.
0: It is. I I tried to ask Sid about um, their net retention and if that helped them get to revenue predictability ahead of their IPO, and he declined to answer that directly. Uh, Just going (laughs) to point that out. And uh, last thing here, Danny, um, looking back in time, 2019, late, GitLab raises money from the private markets at like a $2.7 billion pre, roughly $3 billion post-money valuation. Now it's worth 15. So who is the real villain here? Is it the Wall Street bankers or is it the venture capitalists? When it comes to underpricing, I, we, we
1: always talk to these things. I, I, I actually think, I think the revenue versus valuation back in 2019, I think, would be even more insane. So, so I, I think... actually think it was very ambitious then, and it's still ambitious, and they've grown into it a little bit better. So so to me, like again, it's the, it's the pandemic effect going on here. I actually think no one actually made a mistake here.
0: That that is the most generous, polite, kind, and loving comment that has ever happened on this podcast.
1: I mean, it's also two years, and two years is a long time in enterprise SaaS. And if you continue to grow, like we've seen, we've seen examples where the valuation goes up four or five x in like a year. That, yes, that's but the Vision Fund believe. doesn't count.
0: You cannot, you cannot index off of Tiger and the Vision <laughs> Fund because they are drunk, and therefore they're not acting rationally. Maybe it'll work out. I've done some funny things drunk that worked out fine, but most didn't, and that's that. Uh, anyways, we're out of time. That's that. We adore you all. Well, we're back Monday morning. I'm Alex. That's Danny. We're out of here.